Welcome to the Wild Leaders Podcast. In every episode, we dive into whole and intentional leader development topics with leader development experts, Dr. Rob McKenna, Dr. Daniel Halleck, and other experts in the leader development field. So enjoy listening in to this conversation on cutting edge leader development research and experience. So it is so good to be here with you, Mark, Dr. Mark Vincent with Maestro Level Leaders and Dr. Rob McKenna from WILD. I'm excited about this conversation with you, Mark, because we've it's been fun to get to know you over the last year. We met right before COVID, and I've just really enjoyed so many common points of alignment in terms of your approach and ethos and practice for developing leaders. As we get in, could you start by just telling us a little bit about your own journey that got you to where you are? What, what's your whole story? Well, I don't know that we want to take time for a whole story. And I want to begin by saying I really feel much the same. It's been nice to connect with you, uh, Daniel and Rob, and go deeper and learn more about an approach that uh, cares about overall data gathering, what's happening, you know, for leaders everywhere, how do we develop them, but is extremely personalized and contextualized for the individual to grow based on who they are, what their skills are. And, and that, that's that been a hard balance to find uh, in the marketplace because it's so productized. You know, here, let's sell you this assessment. Let's sell you that assessment. And then you've got to try to make sense of it rather than somebody making sense of it with you. Uh, so I, I really like what you all are about. So my own journey was that I started out in pastoral ministry. It was an inner urban context. The congregation was originally a rescue mission. Um, from the turn of the last century, we could say the from the last millennium, uh, it was a um, an interesting mix in that congregation. A lot of uh, international refugee families from several continents. Uh, a lot of folks who had moved into the city during the Vietnam War and the Korean War before that to engage in alternate service. Many of them had a Mennonite background. Uh, but it was really an international uh, congregation. And I began to learn that um, my background in biblical studies and some other training I had did not prepare me to be able to help a diverse group make decisions, grow as an organization, figure things out, be able to have constructive conversation and to have robust disagreement that would actually produce good things. So I began to do some additional graduate work in the area of group process and group discernment. Uh, it was right when Harvard uh, Negotiation Project was publishing things like Getting to Yes. And about that time, I'm doing some original work as well. There was not a great big literature base uh, for organizational development. Things like win-win scenarios and team and brainstorm were all new agey words and made people go, ooh, this isn't real. This is fake. I don't even believe you that you would listen. And uh, these are now behaviors we see and tools we see a lot of different places. Uh, but at that time, late 1980s, they really weren't in play near to the degree that they are now. So I began to use these and began to be asked, would you come help us? We've got this really nasty scenario here with our board and donors or in our fourth generation hardware store that we're trying to transition to the next generation. And it was small business, big business, nonprofits, congregations. Uh, some were ministry organizations. Some had no faith commitment whatsoever. It was just a wide mix and I'm not charging anybody anything. I'm just being a nice guy 
And would you come help us? Well, I've got an evening free. Uh, I don't have to travel too far. You'll cover my expenses. But this stuff really worked. You got people to listen to each other, to listen to themselves, which in many ways is more important uh, than to listen to their context and to their organization so that they could actually bring something to uh, a possible solution or a possible way forward as opposed to. Um, you need to listen to me. It's my turn to talk kind of uh, stuff, or nobody's going to listen to me. So I'm going to have my real input in the parking lot afterwards, bending somebody's ear where my input wasn't even available. Uh, and so learning to how to deal with informal communication, informal dynamics of an organization to help inform the formal uh, processes, as opposed to the other way around, which gets really passive aggressive, uh, just were some skills I began to pick up and began to have good experiences. And then I'd get another invite. And somewhere along the way, it became important to decide if this was a vocation, if this was a calling, if this was a place I ought to live and work. And I uh, ended up running a large international project using that same set of skills, finding out that it really could work uh, on large scale and small scale. And at the end of that, uh, project, we established what is now Design Group International. That was in the year 2000. And that's when I found out I really did have an entrepreneurial bent that uh, creating something and growing an organization was something that appealed to me. So I served as a CEO for 18 years. Uh, and this platform for people have a very deep commitment to a process style of consulting rather than coming in and saying, we know stuff, let us sell you our time, let us sell you our IP. They're coming in and saying, you're telling me you don't know. I probably don't know. So let's get side by side and figure it out and co-learn. So this is really intensively adaptive change stuff where you're trying to figure something out because everything you've thrown at it doesn't work. Uh, new stuff. And so we've seen a lot of that, of course, during this last year with COVID. Everybody has to pivot. Everybody's in some kind of new reality they've never seen before and they've got to figure it out. And all of a sudden you get a high degree of creativity that people didn't have before. And they're finding out they have capacities that they didn't have before. And that's the space we really like to play in. A couple of years ago, I shifted to the founder of the organization. I'm no longer running it. Got a real good group of people that are making that organization fly. And I'm now able to devote more time to people who are probably, probably looking at the last couple of chapters of their career as a leader. And that means that uh, five, seven years from now, uh, they're likely to be done. Uh, it doesn't mean it will be that long or will be that short, but just somewhere about that season of one's leadership where uh, they're, they're recognizing that they've got to still figure some stuff out at a point where they're kind of maybe tired, uh, maybe feeling like I've done my time, so I don't have to work quite so hard. But if they don't, all of the future value of the organization is going to start into decline. And if they don't have good successors, it's going to go into decline. If there's an ego battle between that founder or that outgoing CEO and the successors, it's going to go into decline. So it's really fraught with all kinds of peril for leadership careers to tank, for the organization to tank. And so we want to be walking beside those folks during that time to help them figure stuff out uh, again, recognizing that somebody else is going to be leading, excuse me, leading the solutions that they're landing. So that's kind of the overview. That's where I get to spend time. It's a great work. I really enjoy it. And we're having a lot of fun. So here's my, here's my, our, our surprise is that we have what's called wild cards. And uh, 
we use these as it's, it's a deck of 50 cards. These are questions um, that are all contained in the wild toolkit and the process of intention around this, but they're, they all touch on different things. And so I have the first 20 in my hand. I'm not going to show you all 50, but you get to pick a number and we all have to answer this. You only get about 30 seconds. Okay. All right, Daniel. So there's a whole story here, but this, these are wild questions. So they're questions that may bring up some surprises. So why are you picking on me? Why are you picking on me? Oh, I don't know. But uh, Daniel, so you pick your, uh, no, I'm going to go first. How about that? I'm going to go first. All right. So somebody, uh, Mark, pick a number between one and 20 for me. It's St. Patrick's Day. So let's say 17. Okay. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. All right, here we go. This is my question. I will answer. Oh, come on. I don't like it when my, the questions that we design are ones I'm not ready for. So it's, what character virtue in you is a strength, but if overdone becomes problematic for you? The first thing that came to mind, and maybe it's, it, and is, uh, uh, well, no, the, the better answer. <laughs> um, empathy. I don't know if it's a character virtue, but um, I feel things very deeply. Um, and I can tell you there's a whole story around when and why that comes up. Um, and actually, I would say that for me, sometimes that, uh, that, that, that connection to people's feelings actually gets in my way of my listening. Mm. Um, because it's, uh, it causes, there's a lot of noise for people who are high on empathy that's in there going around emotionally or for them that actually affects the skill of actually paying attention to what matters for other people. So that's, that's my answer to that. So, um, and Mark, I'm going to pick yours and then we'll, now let's finish with you. Daniel, what's okay. your number? Uh, give me seven. All right. Seven, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Okay. Is your introversion or extroversion dependent upon the situation? Oh, I'd say, I'd say absolutely. Um, there are certain contexts and situations where people probably think I'm a rabid extrovert. I'm probably about right on the middle. Um, and it's usually if they see me in a work context with content or situations that I'm really confident in. So for example, if I'm at an event that I'm running, I will look like I have all the social graces. I've got it down. I, I am, I am owning the show because I'm quite literally running the show. If you take me to an event where I don't know the people um, and I, so I went to my, my wife as a photographer and a couple of years back, I went to a photographer's Christmas party and I was the most awkward person in the room because I don't know a whole lot about photography. Um, I didn't know anybody there. I latched on the one person and then found myself needing to let myself go so that they could enjoy their night. So I, I become a totally different person depending on the, the context and the content. <laughs> I know you well enough to have seen some of that. So uh, Mark, what's your question or number between one and 20? Oh, let's just take the top card. Number okay. One. Oh, the top card. Here we go. It's the top card. Here we, top, here we go. What did you, oh boy, what did you experience in the last 24 hours that may have been a moment that mattered? What did I experience in the last 24 hours moment that mattered? Oh, uh, I had opportunity to drive my son-in-law home from work, second day of his new nursing job. 
and uh, working in uh, addiction recovery at a, um, an inpatient facility just started. And so uh, it's about 45 minutes drive. So we had um, just two of us in the car, a chance to talk. And those kind of conversations matter as opposed to how was your day as we're heading up the stairs, downstairs, and that kind of stuff. All right, Mark, that's, I just love all that. I, um, so I got a, <laughs> I've got, a, I've got a, a historical question, kind of a, I don't know if it's a conceptual or an insight question I'm looking for. And then I got a personal one after that. So okay. I want to, um, the first thing is, uh, it's so funny when we met because I don't meet that many people like you who understand this, this part, this section of my, the neighborhood in my brain that so many don't know. And, uh, and you, there's a couple of neighborhoods that you and I connect on. One is that, you know, is that, um, you know, some of the folks in the wild leader sphere, we, we work with nonprofits and, uh, and uh, different kinds of churches and ministries. So we, we have that. We also, you know, all kinds of different nonprofits. And we also work with, with businesses, you know, small to mid cap and some corporations and, and, and also then higher ed. So like when you were telling your story, there's intersections of all those things. I was, um, I think I told you this, I was mentored by my older brother. He's uh, 17 years older than I am. And, and some of the things that you were deeply affected by, I was affected by as well. Mm-hmm. And it was so funny because one of my brother, I have a, just a stack of books that my brother, uh, he was one of my professors too. <laughs> by the way, he told me, he said, if you, if you deserve a C in my class, you're going to get a C. So I took, <laughs> I took two classes from him. And, uh, um, and he, one of the books he gave me was, was uh, getting past no and getting to yes. And so it was fascinating mm-hmm. when you mentioned, cause I will never, I have taught a BATNA to more people, that best alternative to a negotiated agreement to more people than you could possibly imagine. Um, and also Daniel and I use the concept of stepping to the balcony all the time um, in our own work. But what I, if, you, if I could have you go back, what it's fascinating when you were describing that, uh, that mission that you were a part of before you realized this is something I need to go back and study. Mm-hmm. Um, what was, what do you see at the intersection of that kind of that faith in humanity, those, those things that go deeper you know what I mean? Organizations like where you served originally and all that org development stuff. I mean, I could, I could throw out a list of books. I, we already have together of the, these authors, <laughs> different thinkers from, from that season where, where organizational sure. development was really not being born, but it was really growing and in influence. And so that's the first question I have is what, what were you seeing? What do you see as you look back at the intersection of our faith and humanity and all of the org development and system stuff that you looked at and the culture work, you know, oh. That, that really is, I think, an important question. And I keep running into people who will say, okay, that doesn't work. How, how, how can you integrate this stuff? You know, the, 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 the faith stuff, it's passe. It doesn't have anything to do with anything. And, and nonprofits are so different from for-profits. And I usually just say, well, let me tell you a holy trinity of people that I think you care about and respect. So let me just say these three names. Ken Blanchard, Francis Hesselbein, Peter Drucker. Nine, none of those three separated it out. They said systems have humans involved. Humans have to develop. Humans make these organizations work or die. And the ability for any leader to have a strong moral center and strong moral fiber, whether it's rooted in faith or rooted in some kind of humanism that cares about the future or whatever, those aspects show up in all of these places. I'd add one uh, one other name, and that's E.F. Shoemaker, who was an economist, wrote Small is Beautiful. And he's saying, look, for economics to work, 
and to not rob humanity of being human, then there has to be this center of faith. And he was like, I don't care if it's Buddhist. I don't care if it's Christian. I don't, and he was a bit universalist about this. But his point was, without that moral center for humans at the basis of decision and leading, then you're going to have organizations that basically kill and pillage and take uh, and don't care about any you know, long-term effects of their, of their choices. So, <coughs> excuse me, for me, it started there. There is a way of working that expects humans and the world in which they live to flourish. And then to make your decisions on that basis, long-term from the beginning, uh, really matters. And the names that I've mentioned are people who wrote long and deep and consulted everywhere and with everyone and their, their voices are so respected. And what did they have in common? They weren't compartmentalizing everything. They were bringing it all to an intersection of here's this person and here's these people and here it is what they're doing together. And as one develops, so the whole thing can develop. And so that's really where it started for me was working with that kind of literature. So, and so where, um, you know, it's so funny because we are so about such amazing, similar things. And we find that uh, in so many cases that what you described is, we, we sometimes I had someone describe me as, Rob, you're about the conversations we whisper out loud that scream out inside of us. And one of the things I think that scream, that people talk about all the time is that space between those issues of the heart, whatever you want to call them, right? Of mm -hmm. the soul, of our psychology, mm -hmm. and the real necessity for resourcing and the organizational pieces of our lives and that financing affects our heart. And you know what I mean? Like all these right. things that are right. that are disintegrated. That I, it's so funny reading, even reading, rereading Peter Drucker now and seeing mm -hmm. what he was always, 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 always saying. At. What is, yeah. can you tell us one story? It could be recent or past of a place where, I would describe it almost like that tension, that paradox, that necessary paradox was happening inside of you. Yeah. Like where you, where you experienced that, that tension between those things of our humanity and the, the people side, even I like to say things of our humanity, the people side gets us into kind of surface level stuff, like deep within yeah. you, you were feeling that, feeling that pull in a couple of directions and the necessity for it, not integrating, but like, you know, seeing it all. I found myself looking down and to the left as you asked that question and thinking and trying to pull something up that is real as opposed to just a quick pat answer. And the strongest and one of the most recent ones that comes to mind was becoming aware of a level of post-traumatic stress that I carry out of a long season of my wife's suffering and then ultimate death. So she suffered from cancer with 19 occurrences across 16 years. And that is a long slog when you are trying to launch a business and raise a family and get your kids into adulthood. And Lori and I had a strong commitment to raise adults, not just to have children. So, you know, you're, you're trying to be intentional in all these aspects of your life and you throw a pervasive won't release you kind of disease in the middle of that. And after Lori passed away, which is um, over five years ago now, um, it was about two years past that I began to realize that stuff was happening in my body that I couldn't explain. 
So like somebody would ask me a very pointed question, a sharp question, maybe nudge me a little bit. And the reaction of my body did not square with what I was experiencing mentally. So I'm thinking, dealing with the person, talking with them and solving the problem, but becoming aware my body was on high alert. Like this is disease, death might come. What happens if everything falls apart? So my body was triggering back to these many years of the next cancer appointment. Yes, you have a new occurrence. You have to be in surgery on Monday. We're going to take half of your lung next week. That, that kind of shock and awe that was constant and pervasive in our lives was no longer running in my world, but it was running in my body. And so I was not responding commensurate to the situation. And in my case, it wasn't fight. And it wasn't fear. It was freeze. It was like lay down and die. So I'd come out of that meeting and I would almost go comatose for the next day. I wouldn't remember what I was doing until the next day, until I had a good night's sleep underneath me or whatever else. I would end up finding myself looking at a wall and two hours had passed and, and not recognize it. So being able to get in touch with me and what was happening in my body in that moment, this is just one of you know, how many stories could any of us tell? But this was an important one for me. So I could recognize what was happening, choose to respond differently, allow myself to feel the fatigue, which actually shortened it up because I wasn't resisting it. And now what's happening is that those episodes are shorter, tighter. Sometimes they happen the next day and I'm much more in touch with them. And it has remade uh, my capacity to be in the moment body, mind, spirit, when I'm working with people, instead of one part of me there and another part disappearing into some other kind of dimension, uh, which is what was happening. And I couldn't see it uh, at the time. So, so Mark, let me, let me jump in here with this. I mean, one, it's, it, thanks for sharing that story. It is, it is powerful. It, it gives me, it gives me the chills, not because I've experienced anything like that, but I think we, anytime we hear someone else's story, we can't help but find a little bit of our own story in it. Sure. What we've experienced or imagining what will be coming for us in the future. You, you've got this. So what you've shared up to this point, there's this interesting intersection or confluence of um, that emergence of your career into that process approach, building an mm -hmm. organization uh, that's happening parallel with what you're experiencing with your wife you uh, then have these CEO peer groups, you're leading leaders, you've built businesses, you're investing in others. Um, you've got this training and this different way of looking at organizations that crosses over into work and life. Um, and now you're, in a, now you're in a different season where I love what you said, it's, it's not as though those things are no longer with you. You've been able to understand and manage and process through them so that even with the exhaustion or the uh, being in another dimension, it's less and you process it more. You're in an interesting season today because stepping in the founder role, um, letting someone else run the organization, you are with maestro level leaders really focused on what you, what you call the third turn. I think it's a great description. Mm -hmm. One, because it's a unique space for leaders that you are serving that I haven't seen many really effectively serve. And also you are, I think, in that third turn yourself. Could you, could you tell us more about what, what is the third turn for you? Uh, what, do you what do you mean by the third turn? Where are you seeing it with leaders and, and how does that um, 
What is, what is your third turn alongside that? Thanks for that question. When, when you um, have a concept you care about a lot and you get to talk about it a lot, you develop different ways that you can describe it. And one of my favorite ones right now is running the first leg of a four by 400 relay. So the person who's going to run that first leg or any leg, but the first one, uh, they are going to have three turns. They're going to get out of the starting block, hit into that first turn, come around the backside of the track. That's turn one. Turn two, they're going to make that second turn and head for the handoff. Third turn is going to be getting in alignment, handing that baton off and getting the blank off the track so that they don't block and don't impede the people coming behind, right? So that's a third turn is peeling off at the end and in a way that the handoff is effective, efficient, the next runner can just take off and accelerate and keep the pace going because that person can't run as fast anymore. So they've just gone flat out to get to that moment of the, of the handoff. So a person who is running that four by 400 relay, they can see all three turns and imagine all three turns from the beginning if they're thoughtful and aware, and they can run a great race. So as we think about it in that first turn, if we just go back to a leader's life, an executive leader's life, they're learning about their capacities, they're getting up to speed, they are out of the starting gate, they're making things happen. And if they don't have a center that they're developing at that same time, now they're just going to be a megalomaniac. It's just going to be about me. It's going to be what I can have, what I can accumulate. Where's the next job? What's the nice pay package? That's where they're going to be running and they're not going to be playing nice with others. So you you will struggle to actually then run an organization, lead an organization and lead people. If your whole starting first turn has been about me. So if it's about others, and other centeredness and having a longer point of view and you're succeeding, you have a great opportunity to have a second turn that really brings something good to the world, an organization with a strong culture, good products, ethical behaviors, and all of that with people love to go to work at the place that you're running. And so in that, in that second turn, you're leading the organization and you're leading people. Now, you're still working on your own capacities, but it's not about you. And you're actually stepping out of being the sole expert on a subject like head of marketing or head of sales or head of research, being the lead engineer. That's not your space nearly as much as leading the organization. So you go from a vertical to more of a horizontal way of working. And when you're moving then into a third turn, if you've done well, this does not happen for everybody, but if you're moving into that third turn, you have the opportunity to help that transition in such a way that the person or people who take the baton from you and now have the steward role are able to accelerate from there rather than to trip over you, rather than to have to slow way down. But that takes a different set of muscles. At that point, it's going to be about how you restrain yourself rather than how you accelerate, how you get things in alignment rather than just how fast you can go. And because if the handoff doesn't go well, the whole thing kind of falls apart. The thing that's held in common all the way around that loop, all three of those turns, is that the person does not stop learning. And they are ready, Yahoo, Eureka, whatever, after the learning. 
instead of saying, I know stuff. And so that is the, the piece that is fun to play in and to work with people who have learned how to learn and see that as the treasure of their work and the source of wisdom, as opposed to just trading off of what they know. Um, and maybe there's more in your question than I've responded to, Daniel, but that's, that's one way that I've learned to describe those three terms in a way where you can see them all, even from the beginning of a career, and to recognize that it is a lifelong learning journey, not a lifelong gathering and getting and compiling and listing your trophies journey. Yeah. So let me, let me press into that because I, I love that concept. And even, even when I heard you talk about that for the first time, I thought, okay, I am in my career. I'm not at the third turn. Uh, but I can imagine what that would look like. And, and even I think even having that vision helps me move. Think about how can I move well with intention in this season? So when that comes, I'm, I'm able to, um, you know, run in stride to use the metaphor. Here's what I'm, what I'm interested about, though, because in some ways that sounds no different than succession planning, right? Where if done well, maybe you have a good values-based leader who cares about the business, figures out a way to hand it off well, has some good successors. And now... Um, the business is taken care of. I cared about the people. They're still taken care of. I cared about our clients and suppliers. They're still taken care of. Uh, and I've, it's my moment. I, I, can, I can go do my, my golf thing um, or whatever, insert hobby. And, and while there's nothing wrong with that, I, I think what you're talking about with the, with, with the third turn as you're describing it might be different than just, I figured out how to get out of the way. Someone else is going to run it. Yeah. A couple of things you've said uh, before in conversation, two concepts. Uh, concept of beyond legacy and a concept of future value. How, how, how do those fit in? And how does that third turn you're describing look different than uh, a mere succession planning process gone well? Right. I think that's an excellent question and I'm really glad to respond to it. There are pieces here that a person who's led well can go get, but they're not necessarily well integrated. So like if I am aware that I've got to plan my estate now, but I really haven't figured out succession planning, uh, I can go sit down with a good, reputable foundation that's going to help me live into those values. If I am, oh my gosh, I'm waking up, I'm 61 years old and I'm still pretending I'm 26 and I've got to uh, somehow figure out what I'm going to do from here. I don't have a life plan. Well, I can sit down with some people to help me figure out what do I care about and what do I want, right? If I am thinking, you know, the succession plan really is going to be more about selling the business than it is turning it over to someone because that's just the best route for us. I have all kinds of help with investment bankers and investors and so forth that will help me value the business, put it on the marketplace, get the best price, take care of everybody, right? If I want to do succession planning, which is like leadership development of the people behind me, I can do all of those pieces. But to create a map for the whole integrated approach and then to point toward the next resource that's needed because the person's ready and it's out of this very conscious journey in that direction then uh, that's what we wanted to be able to provide. So it wasn't to compete with those existing resources nearly as much as it was to try to bring them together into a holism that we couldn't find anywhere. And when someone is well planning a business and its launch, they're giving it that kind of care. 
when they're deciding what do I want to do professionally, even if they go through a journey of trying this one degree out in college and then, you know, turning right and going a whole different direction, there is a season, a care, a preparation, and a set of experiences where they evaluate, learn, make their adjustment and go. And I recognize, yes, that some people live their life at random and there's some good that can happen at being somewhat random, but things that are built take planning. And it's really a fan, uh, um, a fantastic thing to realize. I think it's what creates the opportunity here to recognize that the ending, the transition is usually not as well planned, thought through, resources gathered in the way that it was to launch and get started or get the next round of investment or do the next round of, of strategic planning. So to bring it to your question about future value as a very specific example of that or beyond legacy, future value isn't just, will we have more dollars? Um, it will, will the company be larger? It will be, will the company, the organization still have a reason to live into its mission and the ability to describe it and the ability to measure what success looks like. Uh, and at this point, when we're talking about value, sure, it involves money, but it also involves the ability to retain talent. Uh, it means the ability to keep a culture strong, the ability to invent, to innovate, to make changes to a product or a service mix so that you have a reason to still keep coming to the marketplace with a meaningful product or a meaningful service as opposed to selling something that's tired or just kind of going into depletion. And my, one of my um, favorite examples of that is just to invite people, if they challenge the idea, to go look at the Fortune 50 from a decade ago and then compare the names to the Fortune 50 right now. And any company that remains on that Fortune 50 across those 10 years has a different product and service mix than what they had 10 years ago, if they're still on that list. And that's because they took the time to figure out future value. And one of the big examples right now is like a General Motors that's saying, we're going to be all electric by something like 2035. And everybody who's at the helm of that organization on the board in the C-suite, they will not be in those chairs if and and those products hit the market uh, and they are completely electric as a company. Interesting. Oh, you, so, okay. You're blowing my mind, Mark. It's just like, <laughs> um, so one of the things that a couple of things that you made me think of one is um, I've always been really uh, had a distaste in, in my mouth for the concept of legacy because, and I, I'm, and I'm trying to get more comfortable with it because I think it's okay, but it's, and it, because most people have thought of is what will you be remembered for? We think about the, like what's written on our tombstones, like that kind of legacy talk, like what would you have said about you? And I think the problem is it's still, it's still making it about us as opposed to like, what, who will you set up for their, for their best? Like is, it's a different way of thinking about it. Instead of they may never remember you, some will, but a couple of generations, they probably won't. My dad always said, you know, it's, it's crazy how quickly you're forgotten. When you go back to the organization where you had a parking spot and then the security won't let you park on this in the same organization, you know, one year later after you leave. So it's not going to be necessarily about what we're remembered for. I also met a guy a few years ago who, who said, uh, I don't think he ever wrote this, but he said, uh, I want to write a book and I want to call it. It's OK to be a grandpa. And it was that concept that we, we struggle to, to, to actually step out and cheer because I, I, it's almost interesting, too, that I think in some cases I'm experiencing people in the fourth turn 
which is, I don't know if it's a turn or not, but it's the turn toward the stands yep. where you yep. no longer can run. And now your job is to cheer, you know, yep. and they, and they struggle with that. Um, and so I was just, there's, it's so, and, and personally, I can remember when I was younger, I struggled with this because I, I would go to seek mentoring. I didn't have a lot of mentors outside of my family members. And I think people may have thought that I didn't need them. So I started seeking them. But it was interesting because so many times I'd be I'd feel dissatisfied because I feel like they were trying to make my vision about their vision instead of like seeing where, where I was going. And uh, and, you know, that here's my question, because so you're just kind of I'm thinking about it's it takes both like understanding that people in those more seasoned moments of their lives have not figured it out yet. They're figuring something new out so that and we all assume when we're younger. Oh, Mark figured it out. You know what I mean? Like. He's got it now, which is such a lie. We work with so many leaders <laughs> in their 60s and 70s still who are just like still figuring it out. And it doesn't, you know, doesn't stop. But I think what I was going to ask you is what is the and, you know, so much of our thing is about that, that continuing conversation that people are having, but don't don't know where to have it or permission to have it. And one of the questions we often ask people is, what would your life look like if it were more whole? Which, which sort of, I think most people will relate to if they give themselves permission. And I was going to ask you, what is the, what is the, what is the dilemma or the, the questions revolving around that question for people in that third turn that, you know what I mean? Like when you experience that dilemma where they actually get honest and they go like, this is what's really going on for me right now. They're trying to figure it out. Mm-hmm. Um, what is that? What are the, what is that question or a couple of the questions that, that you see them commonly asking? I know we need to make sure we it's, it is customized to people. So we can't assume that right. they're all asking right. the same question, but right. is there a common thread? I think there is. And it um, will be asked in different ways uh, and at different times. But the end is how do I bring this to a good end without feeling like it's terminal? How do I do this well? Uh, and there's a, there's a recognition at whatever point that happens that what got me here is not going to help me end with one exception. And that is the ability to learn. If, if I am trying to transition at the same speed, for instance, that I grew a business or launched a business, the momentum carries me right past the moment. I can't hear, I can't see, I'm just, you know, following this drive and I've gotten so comfortable with the drive and what that gives to me. I can't modulate to the new circumstance. I can't, adjust. I can't bring anybody with me. I can't hear what they're saying and so forth. So those dynamics are pretty much present everywhere. But I think, Rob, that one of the shifts is when people begin to discover, to your point, that legacy is not the same thing as fame. Okay. So legacy is something that continues on. Fame is getting the credit for it. So if I have pursued this life where out of a center, I've been able to manage all of the tensions, been able to manage paradox, perhaps, right? And we're laughing in our home right now because we got a paradox happening. I have two-year-old twins and their parents about to move out of our house after living with us for a year. And we are saying, we can't wait and we will miss you so much. You know, that's paradox, right? And a lot of leadership life is living between these things. How do I grow the company and grow income? They're not exactly the same. And as you're 
working through all of that, it's the center, the ability to be non-anxious, the ability to maintain personal disciplines, the ability to look long-term and not just short-term that carry us through that. And out of that center, it becomes the center that needs to continue on in other people. It needs to be the value of a strong organizational culture. It needs to be the highest level of ethical behaviors that helps an organization's reputation continue for the long term. Those become the legacy pieces. And they start to become aware of those and begin to say, how do I do that? Or, oh my, I haven't paid as much attention to that as I should have. Or my list of what matters is getting a little bit more refined. And I recognize that I've only paid attention to some of these things. What do I do from here? And that's why we like to lead them through a journey of setting down what they should set down and picking up what now needs to be picked up and maybe even creating a new job description for themselves. And there may be mourning, like real grief, real sorrow that they are going to have to manage ahead of whatever the change dynamics are going to be inside the organization as the board maybe gets its hair on fire. Oh my gosh, in three years, you're not going to be here anymore. That kind of thing. And to, to work with that, then they can begin to map what succession and legacy and future value can look like. Then they can create the model. Then they be, can begin to implement it now with others, not just themselves doing it. And that is a very careful, cautious, building kind of journey. It is almost all adaptive change. Very little of it is technical. So you have to keep coming back. What have we discovered? What do we want to adjust? Now let's take our next step. What have we discovered? What do we want to adjust? Take our next step. And it requires the same kind of patience that a gardener has to have for their garden, uh, in my experience. And a lot of us, because we're so pell-mell through life, struggle to slow down. But if we don't, then future value begins to diminish. Talent begins to bail. Ego battles stall the process. Uh, documents that should have been prepared don't get prepared because you're still fighting about terms and those kinds of things. So we're just putting it off for six more months because we've got this short-term dynamic now. That's the stuff that's everywhere uh, as we have these conversations. Mark, I think one of the things that's fascinating, I, I, love, I love that metaphor of the turns around the track because what you said was if somebody's going too fast, if, 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 um, if they don't change the pace after the handoff, we're just gonna, we're gonna run by the, 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 the lessons. And I, I, I see another circle for, for you, which is that process approach that you discovered earlier around the, you don't know, I don't know, let's figure it out together. Mm -hmm. And, and this, this third turn of being continuing to learn, adapt and change. Um, tell me about your third turn what are you learning right now? Um, what are you become more acutely aware that you don't know? And what questions are you asking yourself? Mm -hmm. So uh, there are two that are really kind of front and center right now. I mean, there's all kinds of lessons you learn because this is pervasive stuff. It's touching everything that you are, everything that you care about, how you live and what, where you'll work. So in my own third turn, Design Group International is a what we would call a community of practice, a very formalized community of practice. This group of people are deep in their expertise. Maybe it's governance, maybe it's fundraising, maybe it's product design, marketing, it, it, all kinds of things that touch organizations. However, that's in their back pocket. 
because their love isn't to come in and be a contractor or to be a um, uh, just a vendor, uh, which is how a lot of consulting services get sold. You know, I'll tell you what to do and that's consulting. And in this kind of community practice, we're saying the overlay is sitting down and iterating the problem with the person who, who might want to use your services. Why do you care about this? And who would play what role if we do it? What's the criteria for success? And you start developing it together so that the client is saying, here's what we want to do and here's what we're willing to do. So I helped to set that up. I helped to get that platform going. I got to design the business model, all kinds of great adventures across 18 years. And then I step out, but not all the way out, which is a very unique form of moving into a founder kind of role rather than walking all the way away or uh, having a co-CEO or a wink, wink, nod, nod. This is my successor. We named the successor. We actually created another organization for training that has its own CEO. And I kicked up to chair the business partnership. So it's more of a governance role where I don't run the partnership. I just chair and facilitate the meetings. So uh, by being still there and not too far away, one of the issues that I'm working at um, just did some conversation with Kristen Evenson, who does some work with me on what we call the strength of my voice that I am learning to try. It's I've have not completely succeeded. I'm trying to learn to modulate my voice, to speak more softly, to speak less frequently, to speak more powerfully in a sense, so that what I do choose to touch is for our good uh, and not to have to win every argument, not to have to point of view of everything, not to have to provide a historical perspective on everything. Because when I speak or when I don't speak, it echoes uh, in ways that I can't I can't have any real control over. I can't control how people perceive things. And now I am not the person in the chair. I'm the person who used to be in the chair. So what I say or how I say it gets heard very different. So that's one. Uh, I think I'm improving, but that's for others to tell you whether I am or not. Um, and that goes to a legacy kind of a piece. Um, the the second one that I, I think I'm learning to work at is to embrace being a bit of an entrepreneur all over again. Uh, so, you know, launching a Maestro Level Leaders as a new initiative, as a way to give back, uh, as a way to walk with people who are having to figure it out, and then to do it with them uh, is something where I'm learning. So I'm not coming at this, hey, I know stuff, let me show you. It's that I've lived through it. So while you're living through it, you don't have to be alone. There's some good questions to ask or some good guardrails to kind of figure some things out. So let's get those in front of you and make sure you're not, you're not doing it by yourself. Well, now I'm not just living in it. I am walking with others who are living in theirs. So I'm learning all kinds of uh, good, um, let's just say I'm gaining a lot of good insights. And one of the key pieces I think that's about ready to land is actually how you map this. How do you figure out what remains to be done so that you actually could walk away when the time is right? Uh, and to do so with the confidence that what really matters is going to be engaged. So let me get theoretical just for a second, handing off the baton coming around the corner. It's one thing for me to say, I'm handing it to you. It's another thing for the person at the other end to say, I've got it. It's a third thing altogether for it to actually be in their hand as they start running. 
And quite often in this context of handing off an organization, they've only got about 75% of the baton and they're ignoring the rest, you know, and so it clatters to the floor pretty quickly. So figuring that part out with others uh, is what I get to give myself to. And uh, I'm, you know, you can, you can't see it uh, if you're listening to this, but I got a big smile on my face when I'm talking about the opportunity to be in this spot with others. It's a real kind of a holy privilege. It's a real treasure to be with them. Here's what I'd love to, to land the plane, Mark. It's just been so great to be with you. And the, the things we've integrated today, I think are powerful. Maestro Level Leaders is all about um, investing in leaders and bringing them together at that third t- turn, bringing that whole map together, as you talked about. And I'm excited because the Maestro Level Leaders cohort, you are leading the uh, the current one is, is you could be using the Wild Toolkit here coming up soon, part of it as, as part of their overall map. Could you tell us about who the Maestro Level Leader is? If there's somebody who's listening to this and going, gosh, I, th- I think I'm, in that, I'm at that third turn, how would they know if they are the person who should be reaching out to connect with you about future cohorts? Sure. Well, if you are an owner of a company or an organization, or you're in the C-suite, you're responsible for it, and uh, your desk is where a lot of the things land, and you're starting to look ahead, not just back and down into the business, but you're your focus is shifting almost exclusively toward how will we land my career here as I move on to other things. That might be as much as a decade away, but you're able to see that and you know you've got to get the organization ready for that or things are going to deteriorate. That is the optimal time to say, okay, I'm moving into my third turn, not I've come through my third turn and get going. If someone's even further into that journey, it's also really appropriate because they can stop, kind of look at a whole larger kind of map, figure out what pieces they already have in place, begin to figure out what would come next and be able to to map it according to what we call our guardrails. It doesn't say here's the prescription, but here are the kinds of elements that need to be present. How do you want to work at them and in what order and what sequence? So someone who's pretty far into that, we can really walk with as well. It's really not the place where someone has come through it, it failed spectacularly, now they're deeply wounded, everything's crashed, and now we got to try and and put a life back together. There are other places for that. Maestro level leaders would be much more about the transition for both that leader and the organization, because it's about both uh, in the end. Yeah, I love it. Um, If you are a third turn leader, if you're entering or in that third turn and figure out how to do it, Mark is the person to talk to. Mark, what's the best way for people to reach you? Uh, the simplest is the the very elemental website we have, maestroleveleaders.com. And there's a bait, brief description, the ability to reach out uh, to us. And um, I'm the one who responds. So there's no you know interference of five levels of, hey, can I talk to the person who's facilitating this? Uh, they'll be able to reach me. I love it. Mark, this has been so wonderful. So many synergies between what you're doing um, and what we value. And it's just been really fun to have you on today. Thanks for- been my pleasure. Your full self and your own third turn <laughs> to this journey.